Hello, dearest patrons. It's Wednesday, the 24th of February. This is another Alpha Bunga Bunga Reading Club. Today, uh, you get to choose. You get to choose between discipline and being controlled. That's what you get to choose uh, as a sub. Um, Phil. <laughs> Thanks for that introduction, Alex. I'm glad. I'm glad that we um, that we got the um, relationship of, <laughs> with our listeners and also on the pod, like established there quite effectively. So today we're talking about Deleuze's uh, Gilles Deleuze's um, Postscript to Societies of Control, a short essay that he wrote back in 1990. Um, it's well known. I mean, it's kind of widely known. It's a very famous kind of short text, very suggestive and evocative. And it's for that reason, partly for that reason, that um, I thought it would be useful to discuss um, amongst us and for our listeners and to get our listeners' um, views and responses to. So we've integrated listener questions um, and thoughts into, into the discussion. Um, the other interesting element, I suppose, is that Deleuze as a post-structural slash post-modern thinker is, um, I suppose, what's interesting is to think about how um, that particular generation of um, of the new left and um, even kind of post new left, I suppose, um, thought about power and the way they tried to account for power. And given that so many of us um, here, I mean, you know, and I'm sure many of you too, um, are living in various forms of lockdown and uh, social restrictions in the context of the pandemic, I think it's interesting to think about what that means um, and society of control is um, perhaps one way to try and conceptualize that. So it's a way to think about post-structural accounts of power in contemporary society, the kinds of things that um, would once have been called um, domination, oppression, authoritarianism um, on the left are termed, um, conceptualized in different ways in accounts like these. So I think it's worth thinking through. And finally, the other thing is um, there's a very kind of elliptical or um, evocative um, invocation, evocative invocation. There's an invocation of um, the writer William Burroughs as an inspiration behind some of the thoughts in the piece. Um, and I think that's also some of um, William Burroughs's influence and um, potential insights that he might offer us to help understand how power is exercised in contemporary society is also worth thinking through. So, um, George and Alex, tell us, um, uh, well, I guess we could start maybe if you could uh, give us your views about um, postmodern uh, accounts of power um, and accounts perhaps of society more generally. Um, where you, yeah. yeah. So I think, on, well, yeah, my, my understanding or the, <clears throat> I guess the first presentation in the, in the textbook of this sort of thing is the, the fundamental shift between a sort of society that, that governs by telling people what to do by training minds and bodies um, to one that basically that's another thing that we have to do for ourselves. So the, the kind of idea that, um, and obviously symbolized particularly in Foucault's reading or understanding of Bentham's Panopticon, which is the famous prison where you have the guard tower in the middle <clears throat> and the guard can see all the cells and the people in the cells can't see if they're being, uh, if they're being watched. And so of course, eventually you don't even need a guard in there is a possibility that you can be being observed, that you can be being surveilled, um, that changes your behavior and conditions you as a subject. So you don't really need like power that you have to display um, as a ruler, as a ruling class. That's a bit, that's a bit kind of crude. It's a bit, um, a bit, um, I don't know, a bit obvious, a bit bait. And in fact, it's much better to just get people to be in a condition of potentially being surveilled and, that power runs through them rather than from um, the rulers to the ruled. Yeah. So that's the kind of classic um, social science 101 presentation of the issue is that idea that um, before kind of in the olden times, we had this crude understanding of power as something that was wielded over people and imposed upon them. And now we have this more sophisticated understanding of power, thanks to people like Foucault, where it's something which is internalized and incorporated into people's routine behavior. So it's not something which is purely um, impressed upon people. Um, Alex, you went to a fancy, fancy, very important and um, school, LSE. What did you <laughs> learn there? Much less Tell than the uh, much less than the Oxford that you two went to. No, my my the, my institution that I went to for my undergrad was much more philistine 
institution than the one you went to. So we weren't really encouraged to read much theory because really you're just about to get, it's just about getting a job at Goldman Sachs after you graduate. So uh, maybe not so much Foucault, maybe for, you know, for better, for, for worse. Um, but I mean, I guess one thing that's interesting in commenting on some of those postmodern understandings of power is that I guess- You they decided were, to be a podcaster instead of a banker. Right, yeah, um, a, a, a terrible decision. But the um, that diffusion of, of power and kind of how they work in different institutions, I think broadens our understanding of how these things work. Um, but you could probably look at, at least in the kind of the way that that sort of thinking has become generalized and crudified in our times is seen I get in the reference to power in intersubjective interpersonal relations, right? So you, how you get with all the kind of screechy woke stuff where everybody's um, supposedly, you know, neutral interactions between one another, which should be based on a common understanding is merely just an instrument of some power, which is unseen behind them of some whole legacy of racism and oppression and whatever that, that is transmuted through your interpersonal relations. And so you yeah. don't have, and then, so that in that sense, it's, it's deleterious, but you know, I don't think it would be right to pin those consequences on Foucault in the same way that it would be wrong to pin um, necessarily Stalin on Marx or to pin uh, some of the bullshit come out by various Gramscians on Gramsci himself and so on. I, that think, a, I think the, origi- the original sure. authors who, who <laughs> then they need to take some responsibility. They and do, I think, yeah, Fou- I I think Foucault, is, Foucault especially. is on the hook for <laughs> some of this stuff. I mean, the micro politics, yeah. the focus on not on structures, but on people's individual interactions with each other. And it, I think you put it very well, the way that all these things th- flow through you, that's, you know, I think that there are many problems with that, which I'm sure we can get to. So I don't yeah, think we like, should let, let Foucault off the hook yeah, so I agree. easily. And when George and Alex like roll their eyes at me, that's a microaggression. You don't see it, <laughs> listeners, but it's real. It's a microaggression and it's expression of power relations. The other thing I just kind of thinking about what George was saying, um, you know, this idea that kind of power is more insidious and effective because we're constantly, we've internalized kind of certain ways of behavior and norms because we know we're being surveilled. Um, I mean, I've lost track of the number of times that when I pick up like, well, back in the olden times when I could still travel in London before the lockdown, I'd pick up a copy of the Evening Standard and they'd have photos of the latest moron who got caught on CCTV without even bothering to kind of hide their face or even wear a hood or something to kind of um, disguise the fact, you know. So the idea that it's this kind of scaled up form of power and control, um, which is kind of more effective than the old form because um, we know we're being watched. It's always remarkable how um, how many times um, people very clearly, it's not that they, resi- you know, that they're a opposing being watched it's that they're so dumb that they don't either they don't realize it you know kind of talking kind of petty criminality um have you seen this person kind of stuff um somebody attacks somebody on a bus and they're caught on the camera um it's simply that they're too dumb to care or you know just kind of it's so petty and small and um that there's they just simply haven't internalized this kind of great mechanism of control and power um i mean on the other hand yeah i mean it's the counter argument to that is you know, we shouldn't really have any problem being surveilled. I mean, if you, if you're, um, you know, if you're doing something that you don't want people to watch you doing, maybe you shouldn't be doing it. You know, if you. D- <laughs> yes, yes, Tony Blair. Um, <laughs> well, or what you can do to evade it is shake your head rapidly from side to side, and then the camera image of you will be completely blurred, um, as suggested in Chris Morris's Four Lions. And um, that's how the terrorists get away and aren't aren't uh, captured by by cameras and there by for the by the police. So so let's get down to it. So um, he uh, though that is actually a great that is a great line from uh, Four Lions. I forgot about that. Um, so Deleuze in this piece, Deleuze is um, he's trying to main he's trying to maintain critique. I suppose at the end of the Cold War. He's writing in 1990, so um, it's very clear that a tremendous kind of um, social and political restructuring is underway, and one which has tremendous um, implications for what it means to be critical or oppositional or on the left. Um, He hasn't been doom-pilled, I suppose you could say, Um, um, and he enjoins us in um, in the piece to, as he, in his words, to search for new weapons. Um, So... Are there any general points we could make about the text? And also, in particular, um, this inspiration from William Burroughs. I wanted, wondered if either of you had any thoughts on 
how he mentions William Burroughs, but doesn't go into any great detail. Um, I wonder if any of you had any thoughts about how the Burroughs inspiration comes through or the insight from Burroughs is translated into political insight in the piece. Well, I mean, maybe we should just summarize it for uh, for listeners in case they haven't read it, though it's very short. And if you haven't, I mean, you know, what are you doing, man? Um, that's the discipline element here. This is the cracking of the whip. But um, anyway, we're, we're going to stop that analogy now. Um, he offers a periodization, I mean, taken from Foucault, but then uh, advanced, um, which I guess we'll discuss in, in, a, in a bit greater detail. But I mean, the basic idea is that now in society's control, you don't have to be enclosed in any one place and, and disciplined where, by certain rules, which are particular to each institution um, and which you start anew in each institution, you know, so you go from school and you learn to be disciplined according to the school system and then you pass into uh, the barracks and, and so on. Um, but rather that control is much more diffuse and, and is modulated across society. And so you're kind of free to move around as, as you like, but you're always, um, you're always controlled, which is different from the panopticon where there you're in an enclosed space being watched here. Now you're just kind of being tracked and monitored and controlled all across society. And more than that, you're participating in your own control. And I think that's the crucial thing. And that's where the relation to Burroughs comes in. Um, so, you know, the beat poet William Burroughs, uh, heroin addict, you know, for the, for the entirety of, of his life, um, talked about um, control addicts. And so, you know, in, in Naked Lunch, uh, Burroughs talks about how, you know, portrays junk, um, you know, all sorts of opioids, um, not as just a commodity that you go and buy and get addicted to, but a virus that invades you. And, and so kind of agency is given to, um, agency is given to the drugs. Um, and whereas the user is com complete somehow dehumanized. And so the control uh, the control addicts that Burroughs refers to um, is a reference both to uh, the conspiracy of those agents who disseminate the junk, um, who get people addicted, as well as to the user, who's addicted, but is addicted to control as well. Um, so in this sense, there's a paradox of subjects in control societies um, being addicted to control. And you can think about this in, in various different ways in which we're, we're kind of participating in these systems of control, you know, whether it's through social media addiction, um, in which we feel we're compelled to participate and thereby give up our data and so on. Uh, maybe a desire for the CCTV to be kept on so that we're, so we, so we feel safe. Um, or, you know, in probably the most uh, kind of evocative example or, or the thing that is most talked about, which is the blurring of boundaries between work and leisure. So that we, that feeling that we need to be productive, even when we're at home in leisure. So when our, our leisure activities need to somehow be productive or useful, um, or conversely, that when we're at work, we want there to be, you know, to be able to wear relaxed clothes, not have to wear a suit and tie and for the, to be able to play so that there's a ping pong table at your work and whatever. So that, so we're, we, we happily participate in that blurring of boundaries um, in which control is exercised across different institutions and yeah, disciplining institutions rather than kind of within them and that you have kind of free space. Um, when you leave school, you're free. When you leave work, you're free. Now it's kind of this continuum of, of, of these uh, practices and spaces. So, yeah, just a, just a quick point on, on Burroughs. The, there's a kind of interesting parallel between the, what you were saying about control and then discipline previously, because Burroughs's grandfather, the, the, like the family money came from his grandfather inv inventing an adding machine. Like um, that's a, a very disciplinary, disciplinary and um, um, rationalizing machine. And then obviously Burroughs being a, <clears throat> a heroin addict before you could do that and be and be functional, which um, some people would say you can today. Um, yeah, I think the, one of the reasons why it's a good, like a good, a good overall kind of um, or at least to read has been, been very influential is because it's one of these kind of paradigm um, putting forward kind of readings. So you've got, <clears throat> on the one hand, this kind of entire sort of society, disciplinary society, which actually is, is not even the first in, in the history um, that Deleuze sketches um, from Foucault. And then you have this entirely new sort of society. And because it's quite a short and some ways evocative piece you can sort of see some of these threads and some of these illustrations which are trying to characterize this whole form of society clearly there was there was massive shifts um in the second half of the 20th century um including around power so it's it, it certainly um has some quite grand ambitions in i think it's five or six pages to sketch out the entirety of a sort of society and it's much 
more readable than some of um, Deleuze's work, either on Spinoza or with um, Felix Guattari. So there's there's some reasons to recommend it, I think. That's what you call showing off right there, showing off your Oxford cultural capital. Um, yeah, these about... are just books that I've that I've bought and haven't read. I mean, you, you can do it too. <laughs> that is exactly Oxford cultural capital right there. A, a um, thousand plateaus are actually just books laid out across the floor. <laughs> that is the nerdiest. <laughs> oh, well, sorry, let's move on. <laughs> um, just a, one point I wanted to add, I suppose, on Burroughs is, um, I mean, I can begin to think he actually maybe deserves a podcast in himself. Um, but um, the other element that I add to what Alex said is Burroughs, um, he takes the, the addict, um, the junk addict, as the uh, kind of paragon figure of consumer capitalism. Um, the perfect um, subject of monopoly kind of control. They keep on coming back for their fix um, automatically. You don't need to kind of advertise to them. You don't need to sell to them. They they just keep on coming back. And I remember being very struck by that um, idea in Naked Lunch. Unfortunately, my copy of Naked Lunch isn't with me. Um, but um, it's, I think, you know, there's it's very um, suggestive. And I think, in fact, probably Deleuze doesn't make as much as he could of some of the some of the kind of weird um, but penetrating insights in um, from the scrambled mind of um, of a junkie that you get a naked lunch. I was less taken with the piece overall, I think, perhaps than Alex and and George. It's very suggestive and evocative, but a lot of it is so kind of um, I find like so many of it, so much of it is kind of so stylized and esoteric. So that some of the kind of uh, tensions that he sets up between different ideas. It's never quite clear what they're referring to, how far they're actually rooted in any genuine kind of social or historic process. Um, and sometimes so evocative um, that it simply kind of, uh, you know, slips through your fingers as you're trying to grasp it. It has that particular, you know, that quality that so much of the um, postmodern social philosophy does mm-hmm. i mean i guess i guess the good thing is it's short because if you ha- if it was that yes. and long you'd be like yes. well what are you doing with all the states you're just true. you know but this is just a short thing where you're giving certain ideas it's schematic and so on and i think it works for that yeah i mean i think there are better way you know there are better schemas i suppose and it's it, it's kind of frustrating because it's such an evocative idea society of control and i think it fails to deliver but let's get stuck deeper into it so given that fact that he's writing back in 1990 um at a kind of um maybe even what you could call the end of history um are there any predictions uh, that he makes um or kind of identifies any particular trends that have become more real since then well, there's one one thing which he alights on, which is how you can have a, a barrier moved by an electronic card, um, and that's I don't I don't recall in 1990. I wasn't old enough to to remember if um, that's how things worked, but certainly that kind of Where the movement. Up, George, was when? it somewhere without without elect- automatic doors? That must have been really backward. I didn't realize your yeah. origins were so humble. Um, and um, Origin story. Yeah. yeah. Tell us your origin story. Where did push. they have this place without electronic opening doors? It's, what do you mean elect- electronic opening doors? Like you open them with handles. I think, but in any way, even, if, even moving away from the silliness, like the Fordism had punch cards. So that was, that's not yeah. completely new. I think that, I think that the interesting thing is that it's, now no longer a punch card to enter in a determined institution to punch into your factory at work, but it's something where you're allowed to flow around freely and and you're encouraged to move around freely. Um, And I think that's what he identifies quite well and something that's become more obvious as we've gone, you know, 30 years on from, um, well, maybe not 30 years on because it doesn't apply during the pandemic, but but let's say, you know, 29 years on, um, it was definitely evident that you know, you're encouraged to to move around, to um, to shop, to travel, uh, you know, to study, to to drink, to party, to do whatever you want, and so it feels like freedom. No one's stopping you or closing you into to one place or another, um, and you're not really told how to behave in places either. You're kind of allowed to behave how you like, but suddenly your ID will block you. You know, so you're you're there's open borders. You know, maybe you can travel, but suddenly the the police will drop your file and say, well, actually, no, you're not allowed to. to proceed any further um yeah and it's it's quite it's quite clear with a with a smartphone in in the modern city that you can use that also as a means of payment obviously the 
<clears throat> even relatively recently, you would have a point at which in order to travel, for example, or to move from one space to another, you pay some sort of entrance fee. There's a transaction of some sort. And I think all of that friction, I mean, that's the, the ideology of ease as Adam Greenfield talks about it with, with respect to kind of these everyday technologies. And that's, you know, that's one of the themes of the, the, the piece is that kind of constant undulation and movement, and it's very frictionless. So I think that that was one of the things that, that I thought, yeah, that, you know, take, take that trend and exaggerate it. And that's how moving through a modern city, you know, feels like there were no real barriers. There were just different, different spaces, but they're not really very clearly delineated. It's interesting though, what Alex says, because if you know, I mean, it's interesting that that system is precisely what has been kind of broken up in the context of the pandemic. And I'm, uh, you know, it's not a, I mean, in some places it was like um, in Northwest Italy, Northern Italy, um, and in other places like in Lima, in Peru, there was a tremendously kind of militarized curfew and lockdown, and you had some very strict kind of curfews in certain places. Belgrade was another Um but the, um, you know, the kind of if you said society of control to, you know, to somebody ran to somebody on the street, they would think of presumably they would think of the lockdown. Right. And the pandemic related restrictions. They wouldn't think about um, the way in which um, control is exercised in the ordinary kind of flow and rhythm of ordinary life when they move around using you know, the various kind of electronic tagging mechanisms. Um, one thing that I thought was quite kind of um, telling, but also, you know, he, he was no doubt right about how he said the future, looking to the future, he said it will be shaped by, in his words, the ineptitude of the unions. And it was, um, it just kind of uh, struck me how long the um, bankruptcy of organized labor has been so evident on the left. And yet here, you know, 30 years later, we're still kind of living with the same basic problems. And this is something we touched upon in our most recent um, episode for our patrons, 177, and now for Bonus Bonus with Catherine Liu, um, where we talked a bit about the um, uh, the emergence of new um, professional white-collar unions as a new kind of trend in the States, um, building already on the kind of um, large, uh, the large um white collar unions such as teachers unions and so on and the relationship between that and the professional managerial class um but anyway so the ineptitude of the unions you know i mean obviously it's not his it's not an insight unique to Deleuze at the time but it's something that was obviously evident on the left back then Uh, one thing that was a bit more um confusing or kind of i didn't quite know what to make of this and this is one of the points where i found it kind of deeply frustrating or irritating when some kind of grand declamation is made that is supposed to be symptomatic of a whole social trend, but just doesn't seem to um, stand up. He says, surfing is replacing the oldest sports. I just didn't know what to make of that. So he saw, you know, kind of he's what he's like uh, puffing away on the left bank in Paris. And then he sees somebody surfing on the Seine. And then he decides that surfing is replacing <laughs> all older sports. I mean, maybe I think, he means something like California. You know what surfing is, just just to check? Well, maybe he doesn't, though. That's what I'm saying, right? Because he's saying, you know, I mean, what, did football disappear, you know? Like, no, but I think, I think there's... by surfing? What does he mean? I, th- I think there's a point, which is obviously just empirically the growth of um, adventure and action sports in the place of the old of the old sports. Um, and it's basically that, you know, surfing is like a, a self-directed free activity. Um, and it unlike a kind of enclosed contest like tennis or football where you have two sides opposing one another and you're in a determinate space and there's a specific amount of time surfing you just go and you do and you do it infinitely as long as a wave lasts and you get catch the next wave and so there's that shapelessness i think which is what he's getting at there's also another sense of in which surfing so so if you you're carried along by the wave right you're, you're in obviously you're balancing and you're navigating and negotiating but the the structure moves through you right you're you're not propelling yourself you're just catching right at the top of that wave and it's it's pretty mm. exhilarating but it's not the same as you know Are you actually, you're a surfer george i've i've i don't have the the best uh, uh balance technique but i've managed to get on a couple of waves um for a very short period of time and it was pretty good so when you talk about I mean, radical politics you're talking about radical politics yeah i mean people don't see me but i'm <laughs> doing so that mean, kind of doing the hang loose sign yeah yeah <laughs> continually um, in, in some fact. places that's considered a microaggression right there um i think that's um 
I mean, so I, it's interesting both what George and I say, and I can definitely, um, you know, that does actually, it does uh, gel with the other points made in the text. Though I am beginning to think that there might be, shall I say, postmodernist tendencies might be um, more deeply embedded in this podcast than I had thought or anticipated. Clearly, somebody has to be here to hold the line against um, the surfers on their wave, riding the wave of, um, of frog brain rot. So what? So sorry, just 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 to interrupt there. So you're going to defend the older sports. You're going to defend football. We've 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 reached a full mm. circle now. So you put yourself in a very difficult position here, unfortunately for you. Well, let's resolve. Let's avoid that for now and move on. Um, so this evolution of different um, forms of control that he talks about. Uh, how convincing is it? So he talks about um, the shift from societies of sovereignty. Um, what uh, would have been called, I suppose, or you could call the ab- the kind of what more normally called the era of European absolute estates in the 1700s through disciplinary societies um, that reached their high point in the 1800s um, and kind of um, fade away over, um, or maybe they reached their high point at the beginning of the 20th century and then kind of fade away by the mid-20th century to the emergence of control societies um, in the wake of the post-war order. Um, so you have societies of sovereignty, disciplinary societies, and control societies. Um, as a kind of model, how convincing is it? And what are, maybe we could uh, just quickly talk about the defining features of each of those. Yeah, sure. I mean, should we do the features first? Yeah. Um, and the, and the yeah, did you want so, to talk us through it, George? Well, yeah, so I, I, I mean my or one of the things that i think was quite interesting was talk him talking about the the different animals that you have for the different sorts of societies although i don't think he said one for a society of sovereignty no i didn't re- Did i didn't understand the animal no. thing at all so I'm, I'm curious to to hear your explanation so disciplinary society you have the mole and the mole is an animal of sp- enclosed spaces that grubs along um and does its thing and then in societies of control it's a serpent and the serpent is um squeezing and strangulating asphyxiating moving along in its kind of seductive way with or without apples don't take the apple well i actually do take the apple (laughs) you've lost me yeah, you're kind of losing this, George. Um, <laughs> yeah, maybe I'm going a bit too much into the animals. Um, but the the basic, I, I think there are some interesting stylized comparisons. For example, between in, between the disciplinary society, which has these two poles of the the individual represented by the signature, and then a position in the mass represented by a number in a in a disciplinary institution. Um, and this is a very discreet, in, enclosed kind of a set of environments which are very separate from each other and individuals move between these. And then the whole idea about the societies of control would be that the spaces are rather than discrete, they're continuous. And so there's a pervasive logic of control which goes across all these different systems. Um, And so then when you're moving between these systems, you have passwords. So you have this kind of numerical language of control made made of codes and they you access information and through that information you access different different spaces so i think there is there is something in that i do have something to say about how plausible i think it is but i'm i'm i've talked for long enough about animals and concepts in this yeah i mean so it's the last line of the whole piece the coils of a serpent are even more complex than the burrows of a molehill and um i mean you know that's that kind of cryptic wisdom I feel like, you know, that uh, the kind of French philosopher goes to Burning Man and has been, you know, snorting or has had kind of someone has blown ayahuasca into his face or something. And then he says, like, the coils of a serpent are more, even more complex than the burrows <laughs> of a molehill. But, um, you know, George makes a good, you know, I mean, George kind of does um, bring out the kind of the what the metaphor or the stylization is meant to mean. I mean, I also wondered be, because... Well, the mole is also Marx's animal, right? Um, you know, well-grubbed, well-grubbed old, mole. old mole. Yeah, yeah. when he talks mm-hmm. about the kind of the way in which um, subterranean historical forces are always, um, or subterranean forces and historical dynamics are always at work um, in um, sub uh, kind of 
eroding the bases of the current order. Or um, spirits, and, uh, Geist comes back like the ghost of Hamlet's father. You've been taking some ayahuasca there yourself, George. I, I, I assume Deleuze was aware then of of, uh, of Marx's reference to the mole. Then, I, I mean, yeah, I, I think it's. I mean, I think it's a deliberate kind of. Um, it's a deliberate claim about transcending a certain view of um, understanding of social development. I think that that's probably cho- deliberately chosen like that. So, I mean, I just wanted to talk about this periodization because I think it's best understood through legal regimes. I think legal regime is the right way to put it. But in any case, you know, the society of sovereignty is one where um, the king dispenses death and uh, a a crime is an injury upon the body of the king and the king exacts revenge. Um, And so, you know, you you also have exemplary punishments because that's a way of maintaining order. So you have someone, you know, forcibly dismembered or something in public to keep people in line. Um, And disciplinary societies, you know, you, you have a much more a discontinuous process where you know you commit a crime, you're judged guilty or not guilty, um, and then you're put in an institution um, supposedly to reform you. Um, you know, and then once you leave, you're you're no you're long you're no longer um, guilty, right? Or you're not you're no longer guilty, but you know you've you've served your time and you've paid your debt to society. Um, whereas a society of control is one which is best explained by. Deleuze's reference Kafka. So, you know, you've got this, you know, literally Kafkaesque situation where you have either an apparent acquittal or an infinite postponement. And so you're never really free. You're always kind of on the hook, but you're free for now. Um, but they might, the authorities might pull you back at any one point in time. So, you you know, have an apparent acquittal. It does acquittal. sound like lockdown, to be fair. <laughs> right. you're, always, well, you're always guilty, but whether the punishment is forthcoming or not. Exactly. And and I think that exemplifies the at least the transition there, right? Um between between these three periods. Yeah, again, I mean it's one of these things, and I mean it's one of the criticisms that was made of Foucault. So Foucault's Foucault's famous kind of description of the shift from sovereignty to the disciplinary society was shift in punishment from these dramatic demonstrations of um, monarchical power and tormenting and uh, putting the body of minnows in public display to putting people, hiding people away behind um, walls and prisons and so on. And it's a kind of, it's a re have, you know, it's been very kind of historically criticized that there's the kind of the whole, it's not enough to convey um, you can't hang social change on this very kind of heavily stylized um, set of images. Um, and I think, you know, that still holds as striking as a model as it is, it still holds. And so something else that he says here, you know, the the idea of a society of sovereignty was something different from um, when he says so to tax rather than to organize production, to rule on death rather than to administer life, differentiating between societies of sovereignty and disciplinary societies. This is the whole point with these kind of um, postmodern power theories that they, they're unable really to deal simply with, you, it's very difficult to separate what is power and what is simple kind of the simple evolution of society itself. So that the you know the development of new mechanisms of um, um, kind of registering uh, you know the development of kind of modern statistics, for instance, as a way of keeping track of um, how how um, how many people we have, um, what's happening in society, how much we're producing. For for Foucault and um, his followers, this is taken as a new model of um, of kind of uh, manipulation and power and control. Um, when it could also just be taken as a, a simple kind of um, change in the way in which society understands itself, um, a, a new kind of um, a social development um, based on new kind of frameworks and new forms of technology, new forms of administration. At some level, it's impossible to understand where power begins um, and ends and everything becomes power and therefore nothing is power. Mm. And it becomes oh, this entirely mm. because it's so diffuse and so kind of um, polyvalent. So omnipresent, maybe, yeah. Yeah, it becomes impossible to separate from society itself. It simply becomes society. So 
I mean, this is, you know, this has always been my um, issue as kind of as beguiling as this idea of all of these insidious kind of complex microforms of power is. It's so difficult to separate from society at large. And as we mentioned at the beginning, it ends up being like, you know, somebody looked at me funny in the corridor at work and that was a microaggression and I'm going to report them to the HR department. Well, I mean, if you were lucky enough to go to work, to go to the corridor <laughs> at work, then... I'm jealous, but no, I think, I think my, if we've moved on to kind of the evaluation of it, I think my, my basic criticism of it and why, you know, for all the interesting ideas in it, wouldn't essentially accept it is that I think it's a sociological or political account of power that's at the center of it. So there's no, it's really strange. There's like, there's no politics in it, basically, you know, there's the ineptitude of unions, then it's no, not clear who's holding this control. It's not clear to what ends this this power is being exercised. Obviously, there's no there's no agent. There's no kind of <clears throat> it's yeah, by definition. Unclear. I mean, but that's the whole point of the theory. Yeah. But and but also there's there's yeah. But I don't like, think that's that's wrong. I mean, I don't. I wouldn't accept that. I mean, so, I think that there is a thing. Yeah, there's no agents. There's no subject. And I mean, that's obviously clear. You know, in Deleuze what I think is maybe, but I think I can leave that to one side because these are kind of broad um, descriptions of different historical periods. So I'm not so maybe interested in agency, but what is interesting and what is missing is I think a, a single cohering logic, which a Marxist interpretation would bring to it. So, I mean, I'm happy to leave Deleuze to do Deleuze, but take things from this, which are useful, um, reading it in a kind of, you know, in a Marxist or historical materialist lens, which is that if, the you know the, the unifying thing is a production of value right um then how do these forms of dis, you know successive forms of you know sovereignty then discipline then control fit into that um and i think that is maybe an interesting question i'm not sure i have a an answer to it but i think you can see for example the mode of discipline of sticking masses into enclosed spaces and controlling them is because was fitting to the kind of Fordist period or, you know, that period of capitalism when the factory was the main thing, you know, in Western, Western capitalism. But this is the, the stuff we've, was, was the main the stuff thing. we've touched upon, Alex, you know, like, I mean, so we talked, we talked about this in um, our episode, Banana Monarchy with um, David Edgerton, where he says, you know, when all the kind of um, everyone is talking in the 1980s about post-Fordism in the UK, at the very same time that Ford, literally the Ford Motor Company opens up a huge new kind of technologically sophisticated factory. And none of them seem to notice because they're not really paying attention anymore to what's mm. happening in industrial society. And it's also, I mean, you know, it always falls to the charge of Eurocentrism, Eurocentrism, yeah. because... We touched upon this in a different episode with Wolfgang Streak, where he talks about um, in critical, or we talked about one of his books, Critical Encounters, um, where he talks about the development of the huge new factories on a simply on a monumental new scale in China, particularly Foxconn, on a scale, in fact, which um, it's so large that it exceeds any kind of economic rationale um, uh, because it's, it's driven by the logic of control of um, the labor force more than it is by the questions of economic efficiency and profitability. Um, so, you know, I mean, the kind of the the shift from a, you know, if you want to say, well, factories are disappearing and therefore this is a new kind of social model. It's a very, um, it's a, you know, it's from a very particular point of view and in a very particular yeah. context and well, I mean, I guess, but necessarily it, capture everything. Yeah, no, I agree. I mean, I, but though on a general level, you can see what's at the vanguard today, which is flexibilized labor, um, the fact that you're never truly at work, that you're always on call, whether, whether you're a professional or an Uber driver or, or a delivery person, um, that seems to apply because it breaks down the boundaries between, you know, a fixed institution where you go in and work and work is somehow always and everywhere. Um, and I think that's kind of, more evocative. Now, I take the point about Eurocentrism, absolutely. Um, and he even says, Deleuze, I think, you know, capitalism do, no longer does with a factory. And of course, capitalism does, but it's been outsourced um, to the East. And he acknowledges this, but somehow seems to suggest that's not capitalism. Anyway, I think that's uh, just sloppy or dumb on his part. I don't know which. Um, yeah. but, but I think what's interesting in terms of trying to maintain this dichotomy between discipline and control or the, you know, the succession of um, modes of power is that, you know, in China, yes, you still have these big factories and that conforms seemingly much more to Foucauldian idea of discipline, 
would then control. But on the other hand, you have the social credit system in China, um, which seems to be much more um, much more evocative of what Deleuze describes as a society of control. So I think there's still something to be taken from um, what Deleuze says. And from yeah, but I suppose in that case, you've got the two models kind of coexisting in the case of China. And so the idea that they, you know, that there's kind of the one supersedes the other doesn't seem to doesn't seem to work. And um, we might well end up with a social group. I mean, there's already the kind of seems like there might even be the emergence of some kind of social credit system here. Who knows? It might even be spurred along by um, all this talk of a COVID passport. Or yeah, but I, just, just, just to get back to one of the points that Alex made that I think was really was important is if you have this sort of model of different sorts of power, it's essentially a kind of um, it has become relatively commonsensical in one to to a certain extent. This kind of idea of control that actually the way that you know the the way that power operates today is through tracking us and through information and through all these sorts of things. Um, and you know, it does mean that you have to present an alternative and you have to say that there's another mode of or there's another way to understand society, which means that you understand power as different groups with different interests how do they get the material benefits from from the groups to which they're opposed how does this work i mean it's a very different um it's a very different model but i don't think we really i, I don't think that's the the starting point of much social science today i think in general this you know this is is has been quite influential or more represents a, a style of thought which is relatively influential which is essentially like yeah i mean everybody's subject to power there's no there's no point talking about who's who rules who is the most powerful in society because all of these mechanisms apply to all of us yeah i think i also think it's part you know the kind of things he might be describing are also what you could just term um alienation as well so the feeling of these kind of um, vast impersonal social forces of um, urban, the kind of the mysterious flow and rhythm of um, urban, large urban areas and of uh, these enormous kind of complex organizations that kind of tower and dominate over the individual. Um, that is, you know, that's kind of uh, the experience of, so of social life itself, of um, the individual kind of alienated um, lack of having um, suffering from a lack of control in respect of these enormously powerful kind of um, and mysterious social forces outside of them. And so, you know, I think I wonder again, if it's kind of, if power is being laid over um, phenomena that could be understood um, in different ways and more effectively. Yeah, um, I mean, we should move on anyway. Okay. Um, I, I do have a point on this, but we, we can come back to it at, at the end. So he talks about, I do want to talk about this, um, which is this idea he mentioned specifically, the crisis of disciplinary institutions. So, you know, the kind of the Vicodian model of, um, you know, the factory and the school and the hospital is these tightly regulated, hierarchical, um, enclosed spaces where people are ordered in very particular ways. Um, you know, I mean, anyone who's um, been around school kids obviously knows that isn't true. Um, so the crisis, or at least in the UK, the crisis of disciplinary institutions. Um, what does it mean? Um, and also, I mean, we could, uh, you know, I mean, this idea that he also mentions, Deleuze says the family is also one of them, you know, that is in crisis as a disciplinary institution. But the end of the family has been declared many times, right? And I mean, even though there's kind of different forms of family, you still have, you know, the nuclear family, um, uh, man and woman and two kids is still roughly the basic kind of social unit um, in in developed societies still, even with a higher divorce rate and uh, more kids kind of raised out of wedlock and what have you, it's still the basic unit. So isn't it all a bit exaggerated? Mm, I Here's, I think, where the essay is its strongest, or at least where one can imagine like a future line of research looking in at in a more empirical and sociological sense, um, looking at the crisis of, of disciplinary institutions. And I think it's something that's quite evocative because we all, you know, none of us feel like we're in institutions anymore. Maybe in some workplace, you know, in workplaces that still remains the case, um, but, but less and less so as I talked about in relation to flexibilized uh, labor forces. Um, but more broadly, you know, we don't feel that, you know, political or civic institutions shape us anymore. They don't determine us. We don't feel 
any loyalty to them, um, but nor are we locked into opposition with them in the sense of being, you know, even at work with the labor with the with the labor union contesting uh, the employers, uh, you know, whether it's wages or conditions and so on. Um, we rather just kind of exit. Uh, to use kind of Albert Hirschman's, you know, trichotomy of loyalty, voice, and exit. Um, we don't use voice or, or loyalty really anymore. We just kind of feel like this doesn't apply to me anymore. Um, and I think that one can find in the school as well. And it's something that Mark Fisher wrote about, indeed, even in uh, Capitalist Realism, in relation specifically to this essay by Deleuze, where he talks about his experience with further education students and further education is kind of um, post-secondary education, so out after high school, um, where, he, where he finds his students who don't really need to be there, but feel motivated that they somehow have to be there because the workplace, you know, there aren't jobs available. Um, and so this idea of constant training um, feels that there's something, sh- there's something they should be doing. And at the same time, they're not disciplined in them. So they don't, you know, follow the, the obviously people don't wear uniforms and don't sit upright. You know, they, they're kind of lax and play music at the same time as they're meant to be um, being taught. Um, he tells the this is Mark Fisher, uh, recounts, you know, a, a student having headphones on, but says, no, I'm not actually listening to music or play, is playing music through his headphones, but his headphones aren't even in. Um, and this kind of, um, yeah, I, I guess, I don't know exactly how to, how to put it, but I, that, the, that the school no longer disciplines you. You decide to participate in schooling even when you don't need to, and you're just kind of there passing time. Um, and then most Evidently, I think in relation to politics, and this is something that we've talked about a lot on this podcast about anti-politics, about the way that people now no longer feel that institutions represent them in any in any sense, and they don't owe, owe loyalty to them, whether it's to political parties, whether it's to, to maybe to parliament or representative institutions. Um, and so I think that in that sense, the, there's definitely a crisis of institutions happening now. Um, and that maybe. I guess our exit from all these institutions leads us not into not to being part of masses contained in institutions, but kind of free floating individuals, um, which then need to be controlled. Yeah, so I have a bit of a, a, a sideways or diagonal point, um, which just came to my mind as you were you were just finishing your point, Alex. Which is like, what are the what are the different sorts of freedom in these different sorts of society? Um, which he doesn't really touch on, but I think in a disciplinary society, it is kind of emancipation from these disciplinary structures. You kind of escape them, you, you you get out, you get to the outside, but that is impossible in a society of control. You have to sort of see the, <clears throat> I don't know, see the, um, the flexibility and the mobilities that you have as somehow freeing you, but it's not a, you know, it's an it's an incorporation into those um, structures rather than any kind of yeah turning them over. So, but, but I think yeah, so, I guess the sorry, I just wanted to add something to that, which is yeah, I mean, you know, this idea of obviously you're always at work, you're always in training, you're always in education, you're always at play, all and always at the same time, no matter in what space or place you find yourself. Um, and just to add one thing to what I was saying before um, was that in relation to institutions is the question of authority, something that we discussed um, kind of towards the end of last year quite a bit, but that, you know, those schools don't exercise authority and say, you know, this is what you have to do. This is how you have to behave here. You're just kind of there um, and you're controlled to stop, you know, any excesses, but basically they, they, these institutions don't demand anything of you. And so that relationship to authority is pretty changed because you're no longer challenging, you know, the man, the authority that's telling you how to how how to behave, you're it's all just kind of dispersed, and you're just prevented suddenly from transgressing at some point or another. But basically, you're just kind of free to float around. You're in the classroom, but you don't really have to learn, um, and so on. I think the um, one thing I'd like to pick up on is this idea. So when he talks about the crisis of these disciplinary institutions, or he calls them environments of enclosure, he talks about the fact that new freedoms might emerge in in the new kind of environments. He lists as neighborhood clinics, hospices, daycare, before they in turn are kind of um, transformed into the harshest of confinements, in his words. Um, So you know, notwithstanding the points that Alex and George have made, you know, many of, I mean, many of which I, you know, find um, I agree with, 
allowed the disintegration of these um, invite, you know, these uh, disciplinary institutions. But the idea that you know neighborhood clinics, which um, usually indicate the kind of either the stripped back, the stripping back of public service and public health provision, outsourcing to uh, much smaller scale, less well resourced um, places. Hospices and daycare are sites of freedom and resistance. I mean, it's just the most, this is where it really gets into um, the kind of the pathetic um, dead end of this kind of, the political kind of dead end of this kind of um, philosophy and theory, um, which in turn then become the harshest of confinements. Um, you know, the idea that daycare is going to become a new kind of totalitarian institution um, <laughs> is, you know, I mean, this stuff is, it's just nonsense. Or that neighborhood clinics are going to become, you know, going to be so much better than, say, um, a well-resourced, well-functioning, organized, hierarchically ordered, large hospital. That I mean, look, I'm totally skeptical of the idea that these should be sites of resistance or whatever. Um, and I'm so I'm, I'm very skeptical of the postmodern politics. But at a descriptive level, I think it's quite evocative because what he's talking about is the way that um, instead of the big centralized institution in which, you know, you're otherwise well and then you go into them and you're and then, you know, when you're ill and then you come out and you're better again, um, there's one, the sense that you're never truly healthier or unhealthy, um, that you're always in this inter intermediary area, and that these these institutions, insofar as they exercise power um, over you, are no longer within that confined space, but that they follow you around. So the idea that your health provision is dependent upon healthy behavior, which has been, you know, promulgated in various points in time. So, you know, if you're obese, then you don't have access, you don't, you don't have the right to have the same standard of healthcare because, you know, you've, you've done it to yourself. And so, you know, your Fitbit app or whatever is constantly monitoring your health um, rather than this being something that is just done in a disciplinary institution, you're evaluated and then you're let go. Um, so I think that, for me, that, that for me, that was evocative. I didn't read it, I guess, in the same way that you did, Phil, in, in terms of seeing these things as being, um, you know, sites of political conflict necessarily. I think but that's the, what the he suggests. That, he says new freedoms might emerge. Well, no, 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 but it's precisely right because this is, in, and think about it in relation to work. So people think that being flexible, no, being a flexibilized worker gives you a new freedom. Now you don't have to go into your workplace and be disciplined there and then leave. You're, you can be at work whenever you want. You can work according to however many hours you feel like doing. So of I take course, this point. turns, but this comes to be a new form of unfreedom. But I think he, rather than being, you know, so he, he wants us to buy into that moment. So when, you know, when your boss kind of introduces, I don't know, wear your normal clothes to work day and stay a bit longer. And, you know, um, that is kind of, a, I think he genuinely means it as a new freedom. Um, and then it shifts into yeah. something which is control. So there is no kind of, that is all we can hope for, is that moment between when the new practice or the new institution, just before it, as it's teetering on the brink, before it collapses back in to being some kind of structure of control, that's the only thing we can hope for. Um, and I think that is, you know, I mean, that I is think, the kind of, the, that is what he means. That is the logic of uh, this he kind reads, of I, I think he reads much more negatively, right? I think he's much more critical of it. And he says it right in the end. So he problematizes the student wanting to always be doing yet another internship, yet, yet another apprenticeship to participate in these systems um, rather than try to in some way break free from them or challenge them. So he's reading it negatively. And he finishes that the point that there's no need for fear or hope only to look for weapons. That's suggesting that, we don't need we shouldn't look back nostalgically to the old forms of discipline nor should we be totally fearful of of what's coming uh of this but nor should we be hopeful control. there is no should... possibility of actual change the only thing that's left to us is resistance i mean that's the ultimate logic of his that may that, let's that, not get that a, may be true yeah of, we'll come to that we'll come to that in a moment though so i want to i want to um I, there is so another point which i thought we again kind of Evocative and interesting is this idea that he talks about the conquest of markets depends on um, control more than discipline, exchange rates, manipulating exchange rates more than cost cutting, and product transformation rather than specialization. And again, this is kind of, uh, you know, it's a kind of tremendously broad stylized claim about um, shifts in economic uh, behavior and uh, capitalist uh, interaction. Um, 
what do we make of this? I mean, at some level, I suppose it's an empirical question, but uh, how far does it capture how capitalism has changed in the last 30 years? It seems to me manifestly false. If you look at what's driving the global economy, it's the, it's, yeah, it's about cost cutting. Why has China become the workshop of the world? Because, you know, to be very, very crude about it, this, this is where production is cheaper. You can um, offshore, you can, you know, that is a, that is a strategy for American elites which which they which they have taken and i don't think that's been due to the exchange rate um no it's been yeah. due to artificially the class struggle is, in, in america as donald trump said like an artificially uh, low exchange rate yeah yeah that <laughs> maybe deleuze is right after all yeah no he i but I, I this what the ccp would do to maintain <laughs> its industrial supremacy but I, I agree that this, I, I also thought this was kind of bullshit because it, this is just an empirical question. Then you go look into it and you're like, well, I mean, depending on which way you're looking at it, you know, these these are quite specific claims. And, you know, maybe exchange rates more than cost cutting, maybe. But as George said, you know, it's kind of both. And um, product transformation more than specialization. I don't even know what that means, it's, especially, yeah, you know, really... I, it's... I think the the one the when when it gets more a bit to the nub of it is when he says you know marketing is the soul of the corporation and I think there you know that's yeah. right that it's no longer about production of use values because that's a way of realizing exchange value but that um, production is increasingly financialized increasingly directed to the production of signs and well, branding. I think well he says that we're told that um, he says um, the the fact that corporations can have souls is the most frightening news. Um, yeah. I think, and I think, I mean, you know, so, and I think that's kind of and right. And they can have and Twitter that's... avatars who make jokes on Twitter, you know, that's, that's frightening. <laughs> that's that, I think I'm not being that about is an interesting idea. Right. It's a brand, I mean, I think it's a development of the idea of brands, you know, so not only corporations having legal personality and legal standing, the great kind of innovation of late 19th century, early 20th century American capitalism. Um, but by the end of the 20th century, the kind of um, the brand and the identity of a corporation means that it's kind of, it does, it begins to take on the qualities of a soul. And maybe that is something which is most kind of, um, you know, you could talk about it, say, with um, brands that people identify to, you know, an extraordinary degree that is so obviously ridiculous. Like, I mean, to pick on an obvious example, but Apple, I guess. Um, would be yeah, one. but, but, but I think Apple's an interesting example because it's not, you know, the two things happen at the same time. The, you know, Foxconn is a it's a is a good example of how Apple has made extraordinary um, cost savings in producing its consumer goods, and that has obviously been interrelated with the with some extremely um, successful marketing. I think the two go the two go hand in hand, um, and I guess there is a you know there's a it's difficult to identify which in most cases, which comes first, but I would say that the material, if you just d disregard it as Deleuze does, it's not, you're, you're going to get a very one-sided picture. So I guess this takes us back um, to the end point, his last line, there is no need to fear or hope only to look for weapons. Um, and, you know, while there's a kind of, um, there's a welcome kind of combativeness um which um, is stirring in one sense. I think, as I said to Alex earlier, I do think it speaks to this model of left politics that is nothing but resistance. Because if there is nothing to hope for and you only you can never kind of um, extricate yourself from power, um, you only kind of, um, wherever there's power, there is resistance. And it's always this kind of um, flux and flow that's uh, kind of always uh, metastasizing into something else and something new, um, then there is, it's, you're simply kind of part of it. There's no, there's no possibility of um, changing things in a durable and sustainable way that it would um, boost um, life, society, people onto a qualitatively improved level. All you've got to do is look for weapons because um, there's no chance of winning, in fact. 
I kind of agree with your take, and I'm definitely skeptical of this notion that you know resistance is is you know resistance is part of our problem. Um, something that we discussed with with uh, Todd McGowan, um, we should discuss a little bit more as well. Um, so resistance is definitely part of the problem, but I I think. And I think, sorry, I think it's kind of visible as well. One other example from the text is in the second section on logic, when he talks about the machines, which are adic- which are um, emblematic, I guess, of, of these different types of societies, so discipline society and control society, um, in relation to the, the opposition that he references, sorry, the opposition to those societies, before you could smash the machine or, or um, sabotage the machine, whereas now the hope is you have to introduce a virus into the network to that. To that's the way that you would jam it, I guess. And that can be read, I guess, in two different ways. One is just a mere form of resistance of kind of rejection of the, the form of society, the form that society takes now. Um, or it could be seen as a, as a, as a sort of revolutionary weapon. Um, so, you know, before you might kind of obstruct production in, in one place, now that's no longer possible. So you in some sense have to break the network. You have to introduce a virus into the network. Um, these are obviously very broad brush ways of, of conceptualizing politics, but um, it did get me mm-hmm. to thinking that, you know, we're, we're not going to be able to do, carry out a, a social revolution because the, the authorities will have data, data on us everywhere and will be unable to do anything. So part of any global revolution in the future would surely involve shutting down the internet, for example. That's sacrilegious. Um, the no, I guess my my sort of, I guess the reason why I would ultimately sort of reject the framework that that is proposed here is that it feels like society of control, which is an interesting kind of phrase in sorry the Brexit context of societies of of taking you know taking back control, you might say. The one way to talk about societies of control is essentially a democratic society. So my take would be that the societies of control is essentially a rationalization of what we have at the moment. It's that it's intuitive pull, which I, I mean, it's a, it's a good read and it's evocative. I mean, we've used that word quite a lot. I would say it's explained by the feeling of the absence of, of power that we have. And what explains that? Well, it's absence, absence of popular sovereignty, the distance that we um, feel from representative politics, from political decision making, um, and I think that's you know that's 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 why I would reject that because it essentially accepts that condition that we won't have any sort of collective um, control. control, and we're essentially trapped in that in that in that situation yeah, of having the state being having increased technical capabilities to control us and a decreased ability to solve political. It's a brilliant point, George, um, and a great point to end on, because um, obviously society of control is intended to evoke kind of quasi, you know, it's a portentous kind of term, and it's intended to invoke um, kind of, um, you know, murmurings or rumours, I suppose, of totalitarianism, spectres of totalitarian something sinister um, and insidious and manipulative, all of that. I mean, it's entire, you know, there is a, there's a negative connotation no way to get around it. Um, but why wouldn't we want to live in a society of control rather than see it as a negative thing? Take, I think, but, the, but what are the, what are the control? Obje- but what are the objects of control? I mean, in, in Deleuze, right? Well, ourselves um, ultimately, right? Which we want is- to be the subjects of control. No, I just wanted to throw yes, in some, well. some Brexit red meat there for Phil. And no, he, that was great. I think up. you're absolutely right though, because I think that's the point. Deleuze does, you know, Deleuze can, he can see picking up weapons to fight the society of control. Um, but the idea that society of control, that you could actually be in control, that's something that's something that's beyond him. Yeah, that's probably, um, that might quite possibly be right. Um, I, I did want to make one final point, though, um, which I thought, at least in, in defense of the text, which is that I remember reading a, a text by Alex Gurevich, you know, a friend of the podcast, about mass incarceration. And he made the point that mass incarceration in the U.S. previously supposedly under the disciplinary society, was to discipline people, to discipline people for work. Um, whereas now mass incarceration performs the role at a, at a time when uh, effectively the capitalist economy doesn't need a lot of laborers. Um, it's just a way of enclosing them to putting in, effectively controlling them. Um, and that really brought home to me that made perhaps the difference um, between discipline societies and control societies. And it's something that we might see more of because um 
if we think about kind of the growth of slums and the end of modernization, the inability, especially of um, societies outside the Western bubble to actually incorporate masses of citizens through industrialization and industrial work in the way that they were previously able to, you have these mass of isolated individuals or uh, monetary subjects without money, as Robert Kurtz calls them. Um, basically, people who are free to participate in market society, but don't have the means to do so, and therefore need to be not disciplined into the labor force, but merely controlled so that they don't present any threat, so they don't you know, riot effectively. Um, and I think in that regard, that, and perhaps that's maybe the way in which uh, Deleuze's text is most prescient and something that we do definitely have to have to think about um, because those oppositions um, between labor and capital aren't maybe fought out in the workplace anymore in a, in a, in societies in which capital just doesn't have use for people. So listeners, I guess we can leave it there. There is no need to fear, but we should hope for, we like we should be in control. Um, that's uh, what we want. So okay. um, over to you, Alex, tell us what's coming up next. Yep. So um, speaking of control, uh, next time, uh, it is the first in our three-part reading club on Perry Anderson's three essays on the EU and sovereignty and Brexit. Um, those essays in the London Review books have already created a huge amount of debate. So we'll be referring to, to the debate around it too. Um, so do get your questions in. Um, we'll try to take them one by one though, so not discuss them all together. Um, they're fairly lengthy essays, but you know, each individually is, is definitely digestible. Um, so we've got that. And then after that, um, sometime later in the year, we've got readings by Zizek, by Michael Lowy, by Michael Lynn, Marshall Berman, Eva Luz, and several more. Uh, if this is something that your friends or enemies would be interested in, uh, do tell them and uh, get them to sign up. Um, and uh, hopefully we'll have this be more participatory as well. Okay, that's it for now. Catch you later. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.